This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by Mook Delivery, bringing you the food you love. Mook Delivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with Mook Delivery. So the only thing left to say is, you win. Order now on the McDonald's app. You can also get reward points delivered too. So the ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Back of the Nest, the Palace Years. This time we're looking at season 14-15 because it's the next season after the previous ones. Pulis leaves, oh spoiler alert, uh, Warnock joins, then leaves, spoiler alert, and then Alan Pardew arrives, spoiler alert. Uh, listen in just one moment. Back of the Nest, the Palace Years. Right, we are then. Let's start with a little introduction to my panel. First up, he's on almost every one of these. It's Patrick O'Connor. Hello again. Again. Hello again. Oh, it's just an absolute pleasure though, Patrick, isn't it? We love that little jaunt down memory lane, skipping hand in hand. It's fun, isn't it? I'm actually enjoying them. I really am. I hope listeners are enjoying them. Much as we are doing them. Yeah, we're getting some good feedback anyway. So thanks for that, everybody. And uh, if you have bad feedback, just keep it to yourself. Uh, we've also got Mr. Ed Kellaway. Good evening. Oh, hello. Good evening. It, oh, it's been ages since we've spoken. You've had, it's you been know, a while. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to come and witness you and Patrick skipping down memory lane. <laughs> Absolutely <So>. right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've been looking after your uh, your now slightly larger family, haven't you? Yes, yeah. Adjusting to a dad life, uh, getting dad the hang life. of it, but hopefully it'll uh, not impact too many visits to Sellers Park this coming season. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, good man. Well, let's steam straight into season 14, 15. Um, so obviously we ended the previous season, as you would have just listened to recently, I would hope, um, in, in quite good shape, um, looking into a, you know, a year ahead. You know, Pulis was in charge. We thought he was going to settle down. You know, we had a, a safe pair of hands at the tiller. It was all going to be fairly straightforward. Sign some uh, some experience and some talent. Just build on what we'd done the previous season. And everything was going to be just smashing. Mm. So uh, we'd planned a pre-season tour to, to the USA, um, which followed a, well, a trip to Austria for a training camp with Pulis and um well, there was an awful lot of activity in the transfer market. But before we get into that, Patrick? Yeah, I was lucky enough to actually attend two of the matches in the USA. Uh, was at the game in Richmond, Virginia. Um, got to actually meet some of the players pre-match, which was really nice. They were very, very friendly. 
what I kind of noticed though was was that match was that I didn't see a lot of Pulis interaction with anybody, not just the uh, the players but also the uh, the fans, which I find very strange. I was also at the match prior to that. We beat Philadelphia Union in Philadelphia one nil, and again I just got a strange vibe. Uh, actually, at that game, uh, Parish was actually right behind us and actually spent a lot of time talking to the fans, which was really nice. And um, also, we met the new owners. The American owners were actually. Uh, at that match too so it was interesting to kind of meet the you know they were very very friendly again the owners and also parish there but again I, I got a strange vibe from Pulis at that match and I just didn't know it was going to come up soon but I did, didn't get a good feeling about him when I was at those matches yeah absolutely right it's, yeah good good um, point point to make regarding the the new investment we attracted from the um still current at the time of recording uh, American investors <laughs> and um yeah, and, and, and you know a lot of optimism around the club at the time. So, as I say, we um, we did an awful lot in the transfer market. Now, obviously, we'll be talking about some transfers both pre and post Pulis, um, but we will be talking more about the situation regarding the management and that pre-season tour in just a moment. But as I love to start these podcasts, going through the ins and outs and what some magnificent names in there. Um, so, gents, our first signing, which is fairly reminiscent of the approaching season 2019 to 20 Chris Kettings. Hmm. Yeah. Our first signing Chris, Chris Kettings there. The, uh, the, the goalkeeper. There. <laughs> um, the memories, memories flooding back of, of that signing old Chris Kettings there in the goal. Wearing those, the gloves. Do you remember Patrick wore gloves? Didn't he? <laughs> Most um, keepers do by the way. This yeah. is not 90. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. That's very, very true. But gloves and, um, Stood in the goal there, didn't he, Ed? Stood in the uh, the goal, old Chris Kessler. Yes, yeah, very well. Uh, yeah. I mean, you still see numerous keeper tops around the place with Kettings 26 on the back. You? <laughs> you do, you do, absolutely right. Um, still Good playing, point. of course, Chris Kettings at a club, I believe. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, he never did anything wrong, bless him, but that's um, I could have lost the word wrong out of that sentence as well. But anyway, <laughs> that, was, that was exciting. Uh, but then... We signed the legendary Fraser Campbell. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Fraser, if I may, because he got a bit of stick uh, for all, pretty much all of his time at Palace. But, I mean, I remember him coming through as a, as a Man United youngster, full of promise, went to Hull, uh, really did perform extremely well there. But I think a couple of injuries sort of did for him at a critical moment in his development. But, he, you know, he was a handy player, Patrick. I know you sort of felt he got a bit of a, a hard ride as well. Yeah, I actually remember writing an article, I think we put on the old uh, Holmesdale radio, in defense of Fraser Campbell. I just thought that he took a lot of stick. I know he didn't score a ton of goals for us, but I like the way he put himself about. And he does have a couple of moments that I do remember. The goal against Everton, the header against Everton, and obviously the goal in the uh, quarterfinal against Wigan. Is that correct? When he smashed it in from about a yard out? Um, wasn't that Reading? It was Reading. Reading, sorry, Redding. Reading. Yeah, Reading was. Was that quarterfinal? It was right. Yeah, quarterfinal. Yeah, when uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. scored the uh, the penalty kick. So, I mean, again, he, he wasn't a prolific score, but like like you, Chris, he, you know, he had a great pedigree coming from Man United. You know, coming through the academy, and um, again, he just didn't like a lot of our actually signings who were strikers didn't score a lot of goals for us. But I didn't have a problem with what he did. Um, unlike a lot of other people did. No, absolutely right. Ed, str- uh, fun memories of Fraser Campbell. Yeah, I mean, I remember being quite sort of relatively pleased with the signing when we made it. It wasn't wasn't big money either, but it never quite um, 
you know, it turned into goals galore for him at Palace. And like you say, he did get a bit of stick. He was a bit in the sort of mould of some strikers we've had over the years that don't score a lot of goals but do work hard. But as I think we've seen with Benteke over the last sort of season or so, if you're not banging in 15, 20 goals for Palace, then you will, you know, no matter what, get a fair amount of stick from some sections of the support. So... Yeah. It was a bit stop-start for him, wasn't it? So yeah, definitely. I think that's that's certainly a, a good way to sum it up. And I think the old adage of "oh, strikers are judged on goals" gets trotted out an awful lot. But you know, again, you look through certainly our top division history, and a few times we've uh, we've had the pleasure of a, of a high-scoring striker. But generally speaking, the clubs. Should we say top 10 and below really do struggle to have a consistent score on a regular basis, and even more so these days where the systems have changed quite a lot? And often it's a striker sort of running around on his own up top, waiting for players to, to get up in support. So, you know, things have changed a little bit. And I think, in terms of you know the, the amount of strikers we had running around on their own up top, personally, I think Campbell was, a, was an upgrade on Jerome, who many people look back and say did a great job. So Interesting stuff. Um, next signing was Breda Hangeland, who I have to say, my overall feeling about his time at Palace was he was slightly underused and excellent, generally speaking. Had a little bit of a slow turning circle, which was caught out at times, but um, thought he did very well for us. But my favourite Breda Hangeland thing has to be the story that came out after he got out of Fulham and, uh, and joined Palace. Um, was He was once recommended by former manager Felix McGath to treat an injury by rubbing cheese on it. Yeah. Yep. Um, Any type of cheese in particular? There was a specific type of cheese. Would you like me to to, uh, have a little, I'll have a little click and I'll tell you what that type of cheese was to be precise. Carrying a bit of an injury myself. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, it was cheese. To be precise, it was cheese uh, soaked in alcohol. And uh, it was quark cheese, whatever that is. So uh, I'll give you McGath's comments on it, actually. He said, uh, I merely suggested it could be worth trying the old wives' tale of applying quark cheese to the injured area. These false (laughs) stories from the player Hangeland are rubbish. I would never tell a doctor what to do. Well... Sort of confirming it first, there, Felix, before before denying it. Not the not the ideal way, but um, I just that as soon as I hear Hanglin's name, I automatically f- remember the cheese story. But decent for us, I think. Uh, and our final Pulis signing, well, it was kind of confirmed after P- just after Pulis left, was a certain Martin Kelly, and um, obviously still with the club. I think overall, Patrick, it's been a been a good signing for us, hasn't he, old Kelly? Yeah, he's been a great sign. But my favourite part of that is the interview that was done right after he signed. <laughs> and, he, and they asked him, is this something that I did because through he signed, this is only for the car park. <laughs> I, think I felt so bad for my interview, seriously. That's the best thing I've ever seen. I've never, I mean, I never forget Grierson talking to him and having an interview. And, and I, I'm sorry to laugh so much, but I mean, I just think about it. And imagine about, like somebody signing and, and leaving the same exact day. Poor Martin Kelly. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, you, you, you chimed in there, but Patrick was yes. too hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, the sort of thought of um, Kelly having his photos with a shirt up on that balcony overlooking the training grounds. He can, at the corner of his eye, see Pulis with a cardboard box <laughs> heading to his car. <laughs> 
don't know. I, you know, if, if there was any, if there was any way for a player to just get what Palace was all about in, in his very first moments as a Palace player, it was definitely that one. But um, you know, he he rose above it, and um, yeah, and he's still here today. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, all joking aside, I have to say, for, for considering the way he came in. You know, under those that that madness, I got to give Martin Kane a lot of credit. I mean, he has come in. You know, he's still you know he's great servant for the club. You know, played different positions: left back, right back, uh, centre half. And you know, again, whenever we've had injuries in that position, he's always been able to fill in. So again, he has done a great job. I just, I just, I just cannot help but laugh when I think about that story. So I apologise. <laughs> no, it was great. Um, interesting. The next signing was a loan signing of a certain Wilfred Zaha. Um, now, to give it the precise timing, it was a day after Neil Warnock was appointed as manager, but had been rumoured to be in the pipeline for quite some time. And there was a general sort of consensus around, you know, people who sort of tend to have some some handle on what was going on around the club, that Pulis wasn't really after him. And, and I guess, Ed, was it perhaps telling that the second we, we get Neil Warnock in, that signing happens? Yeah, I think so. There was obviously the rumours that the, that was one that Parrish was sort of desperate to do and Pulis wasn't keen on it. He's not. When you think of a typical sort of Pulis-type player, um, Zaha probably doesn't fit that mould, so you can probably see some truth in that. Um, and I think, yeah, that was obviously one Parrish wanted to do for his own reasons and probably partly for the fans because um, everyone was obviously pretty keen to have Wilf back. Yeah, um, no brainer as well, though, especially given what we now know. <laughs> you know, yeah, him. I mean, with the, the benefit of hindsight, it, it, it's a stroke of genius. But he obviously wasn't, you know, he's, when he's gone to United, and then even the loan at Cardiff wasn't the the wilf that we sort of the best of him that we knew and loved. But yeah, I mean, certain players have clubs that they 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 play very well at, and clearly Palace is that for wilf. So. Especially on a loan deal, it was yeah for me it was a no brainer, and I think every Palace fan was pleased to see that. Yeah, what what I really enjoyed, um, well not enjoyed, what I, what I think about most when I think about when we got Wilf back in, and you sort of touched on it a little bit there, in that he walked back through the door after you know leaving at the end of a season where I think he was still nineteen when he when he went and joined Manchester United. I think he came back through the door and he was. He was second fiddle to Yannick Balassi. Balassi was kind of firing on all cylinders at the time. He was our sort of dynamic presence on the wing. And Wilf really had to sort of catch up and then overtake Balassi in terms of effectiveness. Um, and I think that sometimes gets forgotten about just how good Yannick was at the time Wilf came back. And having both of them on the wings um, once more really sort of made a, a huge difference to us. Although it did take a while for, for Wilf to get back there. And obviously we're aware that, uh, that Yannick eventually moved on um, at a, well, Nick, the, the season after at the end, really. So, um, But certainly a, a good signing. Not in that category was uh, signing Zeki Friars. Zeki Friars. We paid one and a half million pounds for Zeki Friars in a deal that was rumoured to rise to three million pounds with add-ons. I would guess that some of those add-ons didn't really kick in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think two years afterwards, he made one contribution, which was a very good cross. I forget who scored off the end of it. Swansea, Um, was it? Swansea? I think you're right. It was Swansea, yeah. Very late. But um, awful, awful signing. And um, 
you know, player who was really highly rated at Man United, but just absolutely, I don't know whether it was a, a mental thing or, you know, we just fall in love, love with football or whatever, but terrible for us. Yeah, and it speaks to our issue they've had with left backs. I mean, that's the reason why we signed in the first place. Back then, we, you know, you're talking about transitioning from, you know, Dean Moxie a few seasons before up to, you know, whomever at left back, we know we've we've gone all the way. We've we've had such a problem at left back that just shows you that we were so desperate, and that's why Zeke is brought in. And it's a real shame because again, he was a man I had product, had a great pedigree as a youngster. Uh, he actually played again in that game, that League Cup game that we won up at Old Trafford. So, yeah. but he just never kicked on. Not only just for us, but just after that, he just he just kind of fell off the map, which is a shame. Yeah, it was a shame, but you know, goes to show you it's all about you got to continue that hard work. And a lot of people observed him rolling up to sign for Palace oh, and Bentley. Oh <laughs> and, um, I think that probably immediately sealed his fate because you know you got you got to earn that, really, haven't you? But the next signing we made was an incredible signing, and, and one I'd like to spend a little bit of time on in talking about. So it's for five and a half million pounds, and it was James MacArthur uh, from Wigan, wasn't it? And um, we had to fight Leicester for him, which later on um, in his career, uh, James MacArthur actually had to fight Nigel Pearson as well um, <laughs> for some re- for some unknown reason to this very day. We don't really understand why that happened. But um, but yeah, I think a few eyebrows eyebrows raised at the time to the to the fee. But you think about modern football and the amount of money flying about. I mean, what a player! We we got there for five and a half million. Still a mainstay of the team, but just one of those who I think as soon as he started playing, Eddie was seven or eight out of ten every week. Really, yeah, exactly, and that's what you you get from him. Get from him in terms of the consistency, and I think it shows that Palace being Palace, we've had a number of managers over the time, you know, the five years or so he's been at the club, and every manager has seen the value and the use in him. And he's always, no matter how, you know, we've had some very good players in that centre midfield area over the last few years, but he's always been used by every manager in that role. And you just, you know, five and a half million for someone who's, you know, done 150 plus appearances now for Palace is exceptional business in the day and age of the transfers that we're seeing for average players going for 20, 25 million pounds for MacArthur to get the value that we've got out of him for five million quid is yeah, a brilliant bit of business that turned out to be definitely and i do um I, I won't say too much of it but i know a former manager of ours um was reported to have said that the problem with james MacArthur is you don't really know what he is um and it's interesting that he has ended up playing more as a sort of right right-sided central midfielder for hodgson than anything where he's probably had I wouldn't say necessarily the most success, but I think he, he stands out in terms of, of the ground he covers and, and the effort he puts in. But I just, for me, we, he had a spell where he just seemed to have a goal line clearance every other game. And then he'd pop up moments later at the other end um, and a decent goal return for a, for a period as well. Kind of can do everything. And, and in a way that perhaps has, has held him back from nailing a sustained position up until the last couple of years, which is you know, arguably as, as seen his stock not quite as high as it could be. Yeah, and uh, I wanted to add that he was a huge part to that McJudley midfield that we had with MacArthur, obviously Jedi and, and Joe Ledley. And the three of them really, really put together tremendous um, work ethic and, and fight and 
even creativity in scoring goals between the three of them. And I just think that that was one of our better midfields throughout this Premier League era to have those three in the midfield. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But anyway, um, yeah, great signing. Um, and obviously, memorable deadline day for signing of two strikers. Because obviously up until that point, we'd signed Fraser Campbell, but still the usual worries we have every year of not uh, signing a, a recognised forward. And we went, we dealt with it this time by, I'm going to leave one of them till, the la- till last. We signed Kevin Doyle on loan from Wolves. Yeah. Okay, let's move on from that. Um, <laughs> we also signed a certain Andrew Johnson. Now, okay, I'm going to start with this qualifier. It, it, it didn't play, okay? It, it didn't work out. He was given a six-month deal to try and prove his fitness. You know, Warnock said we've signed him to play, not to sit in the reserves. Didn't pan out, right? Kate, absolutely didn't pan out. It's used to criticise the club. It was, you know, oh, lots of people sort of seemingly thinking they were the only ones who thought it was a, an appeasement of the fans signing. Well, of course, that was a bit of it, you know. But it's Andrew Johnson. I, I said at the time, and I still maintain this, right? You can ridicule it as much as you like. I think it was sad he never regained his fitness and, and, and played in the first team. I was so, so happy at one stage where he played a reserve game against Coventry City, which we won 1-0. And he scored an absolutely typical AJ goal where the ball was knocked over the defence. He sprinted beyond everybody and slotted it home. And I thought, he's back. He's back. We've got AJ back. But, it's, but come on. What's what's football without a bit of dreaming, without a bit of romance? Imagine. Didn't work, but imagine if it did. Imagine if we just got you know, six months or a year of AJ back and he finished his career at Palace and scored 30 goals. Imagine it. It would have been amazing, right? Just me. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was worth the roll of the dice, wasn't it? Because, you know, if we return to the AJ that we once had, it is a a stroke of genius and everyone's happy, but it was a long shot at best, wasn't it? And it didn't sadly work out, but... (laughs) Yeah, if I mean, nothing else, see, we had him around the place and around the training ground. And listen, he was missing a knee. We know he was missing a knee. But, but always difficult to play football with just the one knee. Exactly, exactly right. But it's still worth a go. A one knee AJ was a better signing than Kevin Doyle. I maintain that to this day. True. Um, there we go. But and, and you know, and just to emphasize the point, in the January window, our first signing was Yaya Sanogo. Absolute garbage. What an awful footballer. I, at the time, I tried desperately to kind of just think, say, I think the best, you know, but Arsene Wenger doesn't sign duds. You know, we'll, we'll get something here. But oh, dear, oh, dear. Awful player. Not quite John Obika standard of awful, but getting there. Um, any defense of, of Yaya Sanogo from anyone, Patrick Edge? No, not really. No, not for a I mean, I'd like to defend him, <laughs> wow. but it, it's difficult. What do you call me? You know, no goal. I mean, he scored one for us, two yeah. goals. I mean, he just didn't. I mean, you decided to pay from Arsenal, you figure you can get something out of it, but it just, it, Arsenal signees on loan just never really work out for us, do they? They don't know. And um, he, to be fair to him, he did see the funny side of a lot of things because at Arsenal, he did change his Twitter name to Yaya Sanogo. Yes, he did. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you've got to say fair enough to that. And um, I'm sure he, I, I haven't checked, but I think he was playing in France a couple of years back. Don't know if he's still there, but, um, you know, he's obviously a reasonable footballer at some level, but wasn't wasn't for us. Um, I'm going to edit my what I've written in the notes about the next signing that we made, but we paid 4.75 million, which was Jordan way too much, wasn't it? It was... 
<sighs> about four point seven four million too yeah. much. I think you've been generous there, <laughs> frankly. Uh, I have spent ev- almost ever since, not quite ever since, because I always try to give players a chance. I try and speak positively about them, and I did about this particular gentleman. But as a player, as a person, ugh, never again, never again. I just don't want to, I don't even want to go there. We also signed Shola Amiobi, remember that? Really, really remember that, yeah. Wow. We have signed. Yeah, we have really signed some. <laughs> really, we have basically cast the <laughs> net and picked off every no low non-scoring, out of form, injured striker. You can't say we haven't put the put the effort in. Them. We've really done a terrible <laughs> job in the past. Gosh, Dola Amiobi. Wow, wow, wow. Um, yeah. But generally, we also signed Pap Suarez again to address that left-back situation. We realised what we'd done with Zeki Fries and tried our best to deal with it straight away. And I will say that Suarez made a really big difference when we bought him uh, at the time. Uh, shame about the injury. I think at times he, he was exposed defensively uh, and positionally. But I think without the injury, he could, have, he could have overcome those issues and carried on being the sort of first, you know, first choice left-back for quite some time. But... Um, yeah, uh, good good signing at the time, I thought. We made the Zaha deal permanent and we did fix Wilf. That's the main point there. And I think, again, suggestion that I think it was loan fee plus the permanent money we paid. Essentially, we let Man United off the money that they owed us for him, which was about six million quid or so. Incredible deal, really. But, of course, there was the sell-on fee, which is still a factor now at the time of recording, of course. So that was, uh, again, we talked about Zaha already. We signed Keshi Anderson, who I just want to mention uh, played against Hungerford for Swindon Reserves um, very recently at the time of recording because he fell out with their manager in a pre-season row. Um, a friend of mine at work is a massive Swindon fan. Um, with, they signed Keshi, on, I think, on loan initially. And he played really well for a couple of games. And he kept saying, oh, why have you let him go? He's amazing. He's like messy. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, now he's not so much of a fan. And of course, the finest signing of a player with a broken leg ever, Chung Young Lee. That was um, that was a strange deal, Patrick, wasn't it? To um, to make your last signing in a January window, a player with a broken leg. Yeah, we were desperate at that point. I think for like a a wide player can play a little bit inside also and I, so I kind of understood it but again he was he he was injured so I didn't quite understand I mean we knew right we knew that he was injured and we still signed him but who was the manager at the time when we did that it exactly. was uh, yeah, Alan, Alan Park yeah <laughs> exactly so that that made me understand where we were going when that's I mean I mean really a guy with a broken leg and I actually like Chungi especially the goal against Stoke but Man, he that back pass, or the back pass against Burnley. But, um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, he 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 tried. He just, I just, he was just past it again when he when he came to us. Really, he he, he never really fit in with us. Unfortunately, it's a shame. I think so. Who the manager was? Who was the club doctor that's passed a medical? Good point. <laughs> good, point. good point. Good point. That's seriously questionable. That isn't it? Fair I mean, point. I'm no doctor, but I think I would fail someone with a broken leg. But. I think it was possibly, you know, just see there some guy sitting there with a, a set of operation board game, just with a small plastic hammer or something. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I'm going to steam through some outs, just offering some names uh, in the interests of time. We let Neil Alexander go. KG was re- was uh, allowed to join Cardiff. 
Uh, we let Ross Fitzsimmons go. Danny Gabadon went. Uh, Ali Gordon, one of our youth players, went. Tom King, a uh, young goalkeeper of promise, um, was was allowed to leave. Dean Moxie went. Johnny Parr went. Ibris Akaja went. Osman Sal went and joined Hearts, where he scored 20 goals in one season before disappearing again. Uh, Quade Taylor, we kind of gave up on him and let him go back to Dulwich Hamlet. A striker called Derek Tieku, um, a youth player, was released as well. Aaron Wilbrahimovic was uh, was allowed to leave and join Bristol City, where he absolutely tore the place apart. And we finally let uh, Jose Campagna go on a permanent as well to Sampdoria. And that was the end of the window. In January, we released AJ because he was just too good for us. Uh, Alex Winter uh, joined Colchester. Um, Stuart, what a goal against Sunderland that Mike forgot. Um, I think I'd point out there, uh, Stuart O'Keefe was also allowed to leave and join Cardiff. And finally, we decided that Jimmy Kebe was never going to turn up. Um, and we just, <laughs> just broke him off, basically. Said, see you later, Jimmy. Um, nice of you to kind of join us. And, and that was the end of it. So quite a, quite a um, well, detailed and, and complex season of transfers that was and some interesting names in there. But let's move on to the actual story of the season. So Tony Pulis took the team to a training camp to Austria. Uh, they worked very hard on their fitness, playing one game out there where we won 13-1 against Grazza AK. Um, Stephen Dobby scoring four goals, two each from Ledley, Murray and Johnny Williams as well as some other scores as well. And that's worthy of note because Sky Sports credited the second Johnny Williams goal to Johnny Esther. Um, I will, yeah, I screenshotted that at the time and it, it made me laugh an awful, lot, an awful lot. Obviously then, as Patrick recalled earlier on, a tour of the USA, which was, I think it was interesting, but the, the key message there was that you know, Patrick observed Pulis not looking quite right. I don't think so many watching it from home really appreciate that. That was the sense of the uh, situation. But um, I can recall vividly myself and a former uh, person who used to be on this show in its previous guise attended Brentford um, for a 3-2 defeat there. Uh, I think Andre Gray was playing for Brentford and kind of tore us apart, if I remember rightly. But anyway, um, this, this uh, gentleman pointed out to me, he said... Um, hey, Pulis doesn't really look right in the dugout, does he? Do you think he's off? And I sort of looked over and I was like, nah, it's just pre-season, isn't it? It's hard to get out for pre-season. The players aren't exactly out for it today. So, you know, you can understand the manager not being that bothered. And then about five seconds later, he goes, nah, look at him, look at him. So I looked up and I was like, yeah, okay. He's not really watching the game, is he? It's <laughs> not really. I mean, he was physically there, but you could just see something was was not right. Um, and obviously days before the Arsenal opener, um, Pulis, Pulis quits after some suspicion, suspicious betting patterns apparently it was rumoured in the papers um, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily connecting those two things I'm saying that's how we all started hearing the, the news um, the papers were reporting that there was a large bet on Pulis to be the next manager to leave a Premier League club and we kind of thought mm, really? but it happened um, we know later on there was a court case which uh, in which Tony Pulis was Defeated and proven to be um, manipulative in terms of getting his bonus paid up front and early um, with with some talking about his daughter needing a house and all this kind of stuff. The details are out there if you want them, but um, didn't act in a particularly honourable way, which was proven in court. And it was all about getting out and getting his bonus payment. And of course, later on, at a time where his um, 
there were no compensation was due to another club appointing him. He rocked up. I think it was the day after that ran out. Uh, he became West Brom manager, taking over from the baffling appointment of Alan Irvine. So, you know, a conspiracy theorist could have a field day with all of that. But let's get some thoughts and feelings, Patrick, on that whole thing. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Yeah, I remember at the time, uh, I didn't have a problem with him as a manager for us. I didn't love the football that he played, obviously, but I did love the results. And we spoke on the previous show about how great the great running was. And I believe he was given like an award at the end of the previous season for being LMA, gave him an award for manager of the year. And he deserved it because he was there at our club for a short time and did a great job. But I had so many problems the way he left us. So many problems. And again, having seen him live on the sidelines over here in America, I knew he was off. And I just knew his background. And I also remember you you did a you guys did a show uh when he left and talked about the, the, the betting and how, you know, it wasn't necessarily he might not have leaked it, but he might have told a media person and that's how sometimes the bookies get hold of some of the stories like that and that's how you know, the, the the odds and stuff changed. But it was such a terrible way to lose. And then to leave after we paid him that bonus, it, everything about that was just, just just stunk. And I was so glad that, that Parrish had the had the had the, the nerve to take him to court and to win. He didn't deserve that bonus. I mean, hey, you deserved if he kept it, but to leave two days before the season started against, you know, playing getting ready to play Arsenal was just it was just awful. I thought the whole thing was just just terrible. Really terrible. Yeah, I mean, in the court case, the, one of the most pleasing aspects was the judge just absolutely tearing into Tony Pulis's character yep. and just saying this wasn't believable, wasn't a credible witness, um, and his excuses didn't really wash. And I and I, I really enjoyed that part because a lot of people, if you remember at the time, it was an immediate because of some people with a sort of a predisposition. It was yeah, it was all the board's fault, yep. all Paris's fault, um, all sorts of stupid rumors. I mean, at the time, I was uh, working with a. Uh, an absolutely avid Stoke fan, and he and he had said to me before, watch Pulis because he's not who you think he is. Um, and he told me a story about um, I don't know whether I should necessarily say this, but um, I'll keep it I'll keep it vague. But he told me a story about a an employee at Stoke having a run in with him and how Pulis had behaved, and essentially it was a case of this employee was involved in a very light capacity. Nothing to do with the team, nothing to do with anything other than, you know, this sort of image of the club. And one day, Tony Pulis took offence to something and, and just basically gave him the, got him, got him kicked out of the club and said, you know, essentially that he was, you know, I'm the boss, I'm the man who decides this, I'm the man who decides that. He was, he was, he was his way or, or nothing. Um, but it didn't seem to matter whether that it was a sort of a relevant conversation. I, I don't know if I explained that well, but um, but you know, not not well liked behind the scenes. Let's just let's just put it that way. Yeah, I think 
with the Pulis thing, I mean, I was probably one of those people that was like, oh, Parish, because obviously that the season prior when he'd come in, he's done brilliantly, and you think, you know, where can we potentially finish with a a full season under him, pre-season with Pulis, full season under him, everything looks to be going well. Oh, but this is Palace. Something's got to go wrong. No, night before, till day or two before the season opener, you hear he's leaving, and I was probably one of those people, like I say, that thought, oh, you know, Parish won't, you know, buy the players that he's after. Da da da. But then, you know, when it all comes out, and you find out that it's, you know, he's lying about you know, wanting his bonus early because he needs it for certain reasons for his family. Parish, in good faith, pays it to him, and then. Um, he quits. It was just, yeah, like we said, I'm glad Parrish had the uh, sort of balls to go through, take it through to court, and we were found. So it was found so heavily in our favour, and he said to repay that money to us. And I was at the Hawthorns a season or two, or the season I think that the court case came to a close, where we were beating, well, in the process of beating his West Brom side quite convincingly. And very much enjoyed singing um, Tony Pulis, we're having your house. So, <laughs> yeah. from the away. And- yeah, absolutely glorious chant. And um, yeah, there was nothing you could do about it as well. I do remember as well around the time, it, well, not not immediately at the time that Pulis left, but not too long after, we had Steve Parrish on the show. Um, and he was talking about the sort the transfer side of it. He wouldn't go into to any real detail. Obviously, we now understand why, because um, there was a a court case was going to happen, but he said, you know, he was explaining about the transfer situation saying, look, it wasn't about transfers really because, you know, the club asked Tony Pulis who he wanted and he didn't provide any players. So the club provided a list to him, which he rejected. Uh, The club then provided a secondary list to him, which he rejected. He then eventually provided a list of four names, uh, which the club went out to try and get. Um, They weren't available and they couldn't get any more names out of him before he quit, really. Um, and I think, well, I think I think maybe there was a, a case to say that they went and signed Martin Kelly on his say-so um, and were trying for others. But it just sounded like, I think at the time I said this, people were saying that, you know, Pulis didn't didn't owe us anything. You know, he'd, he'd, he'd finished the job brilliantly the, pre, you know, the season before. And I, and I made the point at the time that the job hadn't finished when the season ended before. He was still employed by Palace throughout the summer while he was on holiday or whatever to, to work with the club. And there was some discussion that he wouldn't return people's call, wouldn't return Parish's calls, wouldn't sort of engage with the club in any way in that pre-season because he had his mind set on leaving. And, you know, it just, he, you got to understand that he was responsible for all of that, for all of that discontent and all of the difficulties we had in that transfer window leading us to having to, to rush right at the end. Now, obviously, people will point to history repeating itself when Pulis wasn't there, but definitely at that time, you know, he was he was hugely culpable in what was a, a critical window for us that ended very, very, you know, in, in a difficult way. And we had to act in January once more to try and fix the damage. Um, but there we go. It was a, it was a difficult time for, for everybody, I think. It was another one of those, oh, not, why do we always do this? Why can we never have kind of some stability, some kind of st- sustained period where we build a team and we build a way of playing and we get consistency? Um, but, yeah, once again, we didn't get that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. 
So we um, moved into the season with Keith Millen in charge for the first two games. We had a really good performance against Arsenal and um, then lost that anyway with a last-minute goal. Uh, Then we played West Ham and and it was was very, very poor. I think we lost that game 3-1 and we really did struggle in that. Um, and those were the only two games that uh, that Millen took charge for because Neil Warnock joined. And I will say this right now: I predicted these the appointment of Neil Warnock after the Arsenal game before he was even linked with Palace on Absolute Radio. I was a phone guest on whatever Ian Wright's show was called. They're like Ian Wright's something or the other of football. I can't I can't remember what it was, um, but I I was on that, and they said, "Oh, who do you want for the for the Palace job?" Job, and I said. Um, be honest with you, I just don't know what's out there. But if I was to pick a manager now, based on the way Tony Pulis played and the least amount of disruption, I'd go for Neil Warnock. And they laughed. Well, they weren't laughing late later, were they? So why do you? Why would you? Why? Just curious. Why would you think it was Warnock back then? Because I equated the type of manager that Tony Pulis was with the type of manager that Neil Warnock is and was. Um, I just thought we had, we were built on a an organised defence, and when Neil Warnock managed us previously, that we came in and he did that. He came in and he organised the defence. Well, I was thinking, well, Warnock can come in, and he's already got that organised defence. We're not going to lose out on the brilliant set pieces that we've got under Pulis. He'll keep those running and continue to to work with the team on improving that. We'll continue to have a, a basis of our side will be defence proper defence first, and then let's see what we can do. Um, and and I, that's why I thought it was a very logical, very sensible appointment. Mm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I, I finished my sentence and then didn't know what to do afterwards. I can see your logic, in fairness. When you put it like that, it's a wonder that it didn't go slightly better than it did. But Yeah, well, I think, Patrick, you were saying in one of our, our conversations prior to recording um, over the last few days that... Warnock initially got us into eighth place. Yeah, um, it's you'd be surprised, but I mean, we didn't go off to a great start. If you want to go quickly through the matches, you know, we had when he a point get appointed, you know, we play Newcastle, managed 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 by Adam Pardew, and we got a point. Yeah. Great, thanks to Wolf getting that goal in a three three. So that was you know, good start for him. Then we played Burnley next, and if you don't know, remember, that's the one where Julian Spony had that penalty save late, but that was the nil nil. We've got a point there. And then yep. we played Everton. And um, we, uh, <laughs> as we have uh, quite a bit, we actually played Everton, uh, Everton really well away and we beat them again. I think it was a 3-1 that day. Jed next scored. Um, punch and uh, Balassi scored that great. 3-2. Three, two. Yeah, Balassi scored a goal. Then, uh, then we played Leicester. And um, that's that was the uh, team. That, that's the game where we, uh, Fraser Campbell scores. Uh, yeah, uh, punch and scores, and we went. We were actually, I don't remember the final. Was it three or four, three nil, or whatever? And we at that point we we got we were up to eighth place after back to back league win. So, at uh, the date is September twenty seventh. We were in eighth place under Warnock. There you go. It was two yeah. nil, by the way. It was Campbell yeah, and Jedernak. Yeah. I think. I think the next season we might have uh, stuffed them as well. We stuffed them quite a lot yeah, these yeah. days, but um, yeah. So that and we, yeah, you're right. And that was what was it? One, two, three, four, five, six games in. Eighth place, recovered after a ter- recovered after a terrible sort of start to the season, and you kind of thought, well, you know, this is all right, isn't it? We're gonna we're gonna be all right. Warnock's gonna guide us into a, a decent, you know, maybe maybe we might even threaten top half here. Um, unfortunately, 
After that um, that promising situation, we then saw one win in twelve games. Um, let's, I mean, obviously, the, the, I remember vividly remember the Boxing Day defeat against Southampton. It was the final straw. It was a three-one defeat. We, you know, obviously on a terrible run of games, and I really just. It, it did feel hopeless. Uh, we, I mean, our goal was really late. Scott Dan scored it uh, really late on. But at the time, Southampton were a very good side. Um, Sadio Mane was uh, was was really starting to sort of fire on all cylinders. I think, you know, again, the three goal scorers that day were, were Mane, Ryan Bertrand and, and Toby Alderweireld. So, you know, st- strong strong players just in the goal scorers there. And in, but in terms of the team they put out, you know, they they were a good side. Um, but another, nevertheless, it was at home, and we just we just sort of ro- rolled over and died in that match, and it it was just it was just too much. And we've noticed in the past that um, that Steve Parrish, once he makes his mind up with a manager, that's it. It, it just it just happens. Um, we go all the way back to when we talked about Burley lo- losing three nil at uh, at Millwall, um, and just straight after the game, he was gone. And um, it wasn't too wasn't too dissimilar, but I think it is worth pointing out before we talk about um, the action and, and getting rid of Neil Warnock and bringing in a new manager that that one win in twelve that was against Liverpool. What a game that was! I I such strong memories of that because um, obviously Chris Ball the season before, you know that you knew that they were coming to Sellers Park a little bit worried. Um, they scored really early on through Ricky Lambert. Weird to remember him playing for Liverpool, but anyway, they scored really early on from Ricky Lambert. But uh, Gale and Ledley, some some good goals, but the Jedinak free kick at the end and his celebration will live long in my memory. Yeah, um, a fantastic, a fantastic, fantastic win. It was a Sunday. So for me, it's a Sunday morning game. And um, I, I remember the shot, Blassie's a shot, and Gale stabbed on the rebound and he, as he's sliding in, which is a great goal. And then Blassie was, by the way, Blassie had a tremendous season this year. He was, he was so good this season. Uh, set up uh, Ledley for the goal, and you're right. That free kick by Jednak was when we figured out just how good he was from set plays. He was, we obviously knew he was good from penalty kicks, but that was a season where he actually, you know, really that was such a good uh, penalty kick. And again, I mean, free kick. And again, like you said, Chris, we actually at that point we 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 owned Liverpool. We really owned them. I mean, you know, it was, so it was even though we fell behind in that match, we just always never really felt that we were going to be. In trouble. And it's a shame because, like you said, you go back to the the run that we had in there for Liverpool to be the only win, and then to, to go horribly wrong for for Warnock is a real shame because again, he he pulled out some some decent results uh, uh, during the time that he was with it. It wasn't even a very long time either. Definitely, um, Ed. I'm going to let you uh, take this this one for me. I can make a quick point and see what you thought about it. Um, in looking at those that that twelve games only one win situation. I think it's always worth looking at Neil Warnock and having perhaps a little bit of sympathy for him. So in that 12, he played. we played Chelsea, Man United, Liverpool, Spurs and Man City. Um, good performances, even in some of the, the games that we didn't win. But we did lose in that run to Hull, Sunderland, Villa, and obviously that defeat against Southampton. But I think perhaps maybe failing to, to make good on decent performances, but only getting draws against West Brom, Swansea and Stoke. Uh, meant that that action was taken. But do you think perhaps that, you know, if you think maybe if Pardew had taken a job when Warnock did, he would have had perhaps that same run and, and we judged Warnock a little harshly? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Because when, you know, you look at, if you say one win in 12, you think, oh, you know, that is that is dreadful, you know, relegation form without a doubt. But then 
yeah, some of the teams that he's had to play within that 12 are teams that you look at and think, you know, you're not really expecting us to get a great deal from him. He doesn't get particularly thumped by any of those top teams, but it's, like you say, it's the games against the teams around you that have has probably made Parrish make the decision that he's made because that, you know, in that sort of bottom half where we were um, and sort of surviving relegation, it's those games that are the absolutely key games is winning those games against the teams around you because it's almost so much more than three points when you um, are beating teams sort of you know, just above or just below you. So I think that's probably what has done him in is not the necessarily the the one in 12 statistic it's looking at the games against our sort of relegation rivals and not picking up points in those sort of key games has made Parrish probably look at it and think um, you know we need to have a change here. I also want to point out I've mentioned it in a, about a previous season I always find that and Chris you mentioned it when the fans turn that's when it's over I remember Holloway when they turned the Holloway, it was over for him. And again, one of the same things, I found the game, the fans were so vociferous. I remember that, I actually remember them kind of rushing again, like kind of similar to Holloway, rushing towards like the, and, and yelling at him. And, uh, you know, and I do always find that when that happened, it's over. And I think that's the thing that will always get Parrish when he feels like the fans have turned on the manager. And in Holloway's defense, Holloway resigned. He wasn't fired. I mean, in this case, Warnock was. But I always find that if the fans turn against you, whether it's, it's social media or just actually at, at the stadium, it just, it's over for the manager. It just is. Definitely. Although perhaps the one time he resisted too long, um, we'll talk about in the next <laughs> exactly. show on this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, of course, it was uh, Keith Millen once again stepped in as caretaker manager, overseeing draws against QPR and Villa, uh, both nil-nil, I think, um, as we waited for pa- Alan Pardew to come in and take over. Pardew was um, was linked with the job almost straight away. I can remember hearing Neil Warnock saying that Mick Jones had said to him, look, they've, they've got someone lined up to come in already. Um, they, they was going to come in anyway. Um, that seemed to be his feeling on it, um, rather than the results that we we always wanted. Pardew and Pardew was suddenly available after seemingly having enough at uh, Newcastle, where you know we all remember it's sackpardew.com and hated no matter what he did. So we all felt, I think it's fair to say at the time, we all felt a little bit of sympathy for how Pardew was being treated at Newcastle, and when he joined Palace. It was a hero's welcome um, for Super Al. How do we feel about that at the time, Patrick? And, and you know, obviously, how do we feel about that now? I'm going to be honest, I had no problem when they signed him. Um, I, I, oh, I, no. laughed at, I laughed at the uh, back com stuff. I thought Newcastle fans were idiots. How wrong could I have been? Um, but at the time, I, I mean, listen, he was a hero on the pitch for Palace. You know, the, the 1990s teams, you know, he was a big part of that team. He scored that brilliant goal against Liverpool. We're going to forget that. So he was a hero. He was a, he was a folk. He wasn't a legend. He was a, you know, was a folk hero. So from that standpoint, and he, you know what, honestly, if you look at his record at Newcastle, by the end, he did a decent, he did a very good job with them. But man, did it go, it went south very quickly. It really did. I mean, people want to blame me. I'm going to pick out one individual, uh, Naveed Khan said that when I came to, to came over <laughs> to see Palace play from that time won like one match. I'm still gonna blame the match for that. It wasn't just me, but yeah, it, it, at the time I had no problem with it. In retrospect, it was uh, it was not good. Um, I'm gonna say this now. The the weird thing about Nav blaming you is that it does actually correlate. But we're not gonna draw too much attention to it. But no, look, it was uh, it was an interesting time because I think it just. 
you know, as you say, the fans had turned and all of a sudden they had a someone with a Palace connection, again, which and, and, and strong memories, these sort of older generation, although many of them remembered that actually Super Hour was more of an ironic chant. Um, again, I, I'm told that I wasn't, I'm not old enough to, to remember really, but um, that it became an ironic chant that became uh, a genuine chant very, after very true, the, by the way. Uh, FA Cup semi-final. Um, but and, um, yeah, well, there we go. But um, but people had a connection to him, and he and he came in and displayed a genuine, what seemed a genuine affection for our club. Which I, and I genuinely think that's true as well. I can remember as Newcastle manager when he was doing the, um, the not the commentary, but he was a pundit for a for a Palace game, and he had his red and blue striped socks on during it as well. Just little things like that. And I and I, you know, part of me there's a part of me that still likes hide you in a small way for those kind of things but um but again i think unfortunately well the way he chose to manage the way he chose to operate um it's just it's not sustainable to to have that ego um and i think a lot of people have gone on record in saying it's his attention to detail around the fitness of the squad he, he believes in playing football as to train rather than to work too too hard on the fitness and I think that's probably what caught him out in the end. You can't really do that at top level. But anyway, the, that that's for that's for a later show. In this particular case, we're seeing the good side of Pardew, the motivational side of Pardew, the fact that the crowd was lifted. In his first game, we came in, we beat Spurs 2-1. Vividly remember that game because obviously we'd, we'd only seen the, the victory against Liverpool in, in 12 games. Starved, <laughs> absolutely starved of... Um, of, of decent results and it was a home fixture 2-1 um Harry Kane scored early doors for for Spurs they were um in the second half but we came back there was a gale penalty and then Jason Punchin uh scoring a um a goal to 10 minutes before the end um and I just remember Selhurst was absolutely rocking that day people immediately had something to get behind and it made such a difference and from there you know to kind of just take you through the 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 whole season from there on and the massive turnaround instead of struggling at the bottom we ended up i don't know finishing was it 10th or something like that um i can't quite remember exactly but yeah it was it was finishing 10th um we won 10 and drew one of the last 18 games and considering where our form was that was such an incredible turnaround um i'm going to pick out a couple of things in that run um, I say a couple of things, a couple of games for one specific reason. And that was the resurgence of Glenn Murray. Um, first really noticed in, the, in a, a game against West Ham, where we won 3-1, where he absolutely bullied their defence, tore them apart before getting sent off in the 69th minute. But two goals and probably would have scored more, but for being sent off, I have to say. Um, but he just gave them nothing in that game. It was a brilliant win. And the most satisfying part of that was having the uh, West Ham fans boo their own team off after we destroyed them. Thoroughly enjoyed being at um, the bowling ground that day. Uh, lovely, lovely memory of that one. Managed by Sam Allardyce. <laughs> there you go, managed by Sam Allardyce. And, and an example of a manager who the fans never warmed to, but therefore was never deemed to be a success, was he? So... Yeah, there you go. Interesting stuff. But the second one, Ed, I hope you've got a memory of this one. Glenn Murray also managed to bully Manchester City. And it's funny, I hadn't really remembered. I remember this game as soon as I, as soon as I looked into it, um, especially for the punch and free kick. But again, Glenn Murray 
um, star of the show where we beat Manchester City 2-1, gave their stellar defence absolutely no time at all, bullied them from minute one to minute 90. And even Yaya Toure scoring against us wasn't enough. We um, It was just incredible, absolutely incredible stuff. We were up to 11th in the table by that point. What a turnaround and beating such a strong team as well. Um, the sky seemed the limit at the time. It did indeed. It was in a nice little run of um, it was sort of a little run of four wins. That was the third of them. Um, yeah, Murray just with City wanted to play out the back the way they do. Just didn't give them a second to rest and got a sort of tap in early doors. And then obviously that punch and goal in the second half. And like you say, despite Torre getting his annual goal against Palace uh, at Sellers wasn't enough. And um, I think the, the place was absolutely rocking. It's it was a I think it was a Monday night game, wasn't it? The Sky game on a Monday night, which Sellers under floodlights always has a little bit of a seems to have a little bit extra to it um, and yeah like you say City just couldn't sort of live with us and Murray that evening and it was you know that was at our sort of absolutely flying at that stage under Pardew and everything everything seemed great That's it and the, he could do no wrong Patrick later on um, in the season played Sunderland where he decided to play Yannick Balassi as a striker and what happened? <laughs> oh the hat trick. Now that's my favourite Pardew moment as a Palace. <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant. And that was at it has and still is the only hat trick scored by a Palace player in the Premier League. That was fantastic. I remember at first he sets up Murray. He hits like a miss hit shot and Murray heads, you know, scores at the back post. And then he scores he scores a hat trick. Yannick Balassi scored a hat trick because of that he was about he can't score goals. That was one of the, my favourite moments by far. It really was. It was just a fantastic, uh, fantastic performance. And, you know, only only uh, jaded by the fact that Connor Wickham ended up scoring a late goal for <laughs> Sunday to make it 4-1. But that was fantastic. I mean, I'm such a big Yannick fan. I really am. And I haven't had a chance to really wax po- lyrical about Yannick. But like I said before, he had such a great season. And then to tap to cap it off with a hatch against Sunday was really great. I loved, I actually loved that match. It followed up the Man City game. Just a great performance by Yannick Velassi all around that day. Definitely, yeah. It was a kind of a baffling thing. I was at uh, Stadium of Light that day and we all sort of looked at each other when the teams were announced, like, what? And when they lined up, it was even more confusing. But um, just, a, just a superb situation, I have to say. Um, and, yeah, another great, great memory of that season. And, all f- and by the and way, I- an 11-minute hat-trick, by the way. 11 minutes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was, it's one of those moments where everyone's just looking at each other as it happens and thinking, huh? I remember <laughs> Exactly. Um, right. oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. I just realised that was the day that Steve Parrish was in America. He was a football factory, and actually, we watched that game together. I just remember right. that. Yeah, he was in America that day. Yeah, yeah. It was the same exact. I just day. remember yeah. thinking Amazing. There was a glitch Amazing. on the uh, dodgy stream I was watching that it was hopping back a few minutes, and Yannick <laughs> was celebrating again. <laughs> There you go. Not that we advocate the use of dodgy streams at all. Um, no, it was um, a baffling day, but also a brilliant day. Um, who can forget last match I'll, I'll talk about in any detail was the Anfield bidding a fond farewell to Steven Gerrard. Who was the opposition, the last opposition that Liverpool fans wanted to see for that game? They wanted to celebrate their hero. Instead, we turned up and we smashed them 3-1. Punchin, Zaha and Murray after Liverpool went ahead through Adam Lallana. It was, um, of course, it was an emotional goodbye from Steven Gerrard, but the the headlines were rightly 
all about Palace smashing Liverpool that day. I don't. There's nothing really too much to say about the game other than it was an amazing moment. Again, Balassi was was superb that day. Murray superb that day, and Zaha was starting to look back to his brilliant best, finding some great rhythm. And it was a brilliant way uh, to sign off our the away half of our season. And finally, in the last game of the season, Palace beating Swansea 1-0. Swansea later on will go on to upset Palace and Pardew in a major way the following season, which we'll cover in the next show. But in this particular season, Marouane Shamak, he of the glorious hair, um, put us 1-0 up and we held on to win. And Alan Pardew said at the end of the season the following he said, we knew we had a chance to finish 10th today. It's probably down to that win at Liverpool. It's remarkable. I'd never dreamt it. Obviously, Palace didn't quite find it in the first half, but we got the adrenaline and fight back. We have a squad here who is not short of quality or character, and they've shown that. We have a strong group. It's been a great experience. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've loved working with the staff and players. We want to kick on now. And did we kick on where well, you'll have to find out on the next edition of Back of the Nest, The Palishes. Uh, thank you to listening. Thank you to Sam for producing. And of course, my panel, Patrick and Ed. Uh, check out all of our shows from The Palishes and everything else we do in the do in the future and have done in the past by searching our name, Back of the Nest, on your podcast app and join the fun on our various social media accounts again by searching Back of the Nest and finally check out our website, backofthenest.com, for articles and links to all of our podcasts. Thanks a lot. Bye. Back of the nest, the palace years. It's the 90th minute. All your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Your mates already got booked for double dipping and you steal the last nugget, snatching all three points. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.